Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. First week of May, uh, we are officially now six months away from first week of November, which will be election day. One thing that struck me this week was seeing Donald Trump at that Fox town hall at the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, just disgraceful to see him there. Uh, obviously, the, the comment he made that he's been treated worse than Lincoln. If South succeeded, Lincoln was assassinated. Again, disgraceful and outrageous. But for me, it really brought home that um, it's going to be hard enough to beat him, and that has to be our task. But, you know, uh, you know, monuments were built to Lincoln and some of our great presidents. Um, you know, we want the opposite to happen to Trump, not just lose, but to be a disgraced one-term president, to be someone, you know, that doesn't get invited to Republican conventions to speak, that gets erased from the history books. I personally hope his businesses go down the toilet. You know, a, a huge percentage of the global population won't want to touch anything Trump-related. So I really was um, triggered by seeing him at the Lincoln Memorial and just... The distance between Abraham Lincoln and Donald Trump is as wide as we've ever seen in our country. So uh, for me, extra motivation to make sure we, we beat him. Let's not get uh, you know over our skis, but beat him as badly as we can. And hopefully he will be a, a tormented, disgraced uh, figure uh, for as long as he uh, walks the earth. Some of you might have seen David Axelrod and I, uh, my old business partner and partner in all things Obama, uh, had a op-ed. Uh, we were asked by the New York Times to put together some thoughts about how to campaign and the COVID environment. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that gives me so much hope uh, is uh, General Malley Dillon, who's now Joe Biden's campaign manager, is just one of the brightest, most talented uh, organizers and leaders in our party. And I think we should all feel that there's nobody better to lead Joe Biden to victory than her. Um, and I know she's trying to affect a lot of changes because this is a different campaign. They're running against an incumbent who's been ready for this for a long time, is better resourced, has more data, um, is, is more digitally inclined. So she's, I think, already made some big changes to the campaign. And, and we wanted to offer some thoughts about, you know, really along the lines of, I think, what she's trying to do, how to handle this period. Uh, and I think for me, the big thing is just, um, you know, to be aggressive. And I think there's an argument, and I hear it from friends of mine and even former colleagues who say, you know, this is going really well the way it is. So why rock the boat? Um, you know, Biden is sort of a safe alternative. Trump's failing. His performance is really registering with voters in a negative way. All these polls look good. But, you know, I, I think when your opponent, whether it's in sports or politics and business, uh, is flailing and having a tough moment, your job is to make them pay the full price of that. Now, a lot of that they're doing to themselves. But to be aggressive in every way you can to make sure um, moments like these don't come around often in politics. So you want to make sure Trump is paying the full price for that, that everybody who you care about communicating with understands how he's failed the country, that he's not somebody we can trust to rebuild the economy. And, you know, to make sure that uh, those parts of the campaign right now that are all of the campaign, you know, this campaign right now is all virtual, all digital. Even if things return to a place where Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump can do rallies and uh, folks can door knock and gather uh, together to make phone calls, we don't know if that's going to happen. But even if it does, um, you know, this campaign is going to be much more virtual and more digital than we could have imagined. So I actually think that um, the Biden campaign will be strengthened for this period because they're going to learn how to organize and how to communicate in that all digital, all virtual way. So even if that's not all we're doing in the fall, it's still a big part of it. I, I think they'll be so. But, you know, my my view, on you know, there's nothing more important than who wins the presidency. That's true in every election. 
that's become more important as that office has got more powerful. But obviously, you've got billions of people around the world, hundreds of millions of people in this country, uh, really counting on Biden and his team. And that's an enormous amount of pressure. But I, I think they need to seize it um, because rarely have people been called to a moment like they have been. And, and all of us who will help them in any way they can, but they're ultimately responsible for this campaign. And so um, I have a lot of confidence they're going to get it across the finish line and beat Donald Trump. But, you know, this is, is something that um, uh, it, it's probably going to be hard to sleep if you're in the Biden campaign because there are so many people counting on you. Uh, but hopefully they can find a way to seize that pressure and, and really um, thrive on it. Because if, if you're the crew that got rid of Donald Trump, you know, as they say in Philadelphia, you'll never buy a drink in this town again. So we all are, are rooting for them and will help them in any way. Um, my guest today is someone who's actually played a pronounced role in the presidential campaign this week. Um, Rick Wilson, a legendary political operative. He actually started as, as someone on the ground. He was uh, George H.W. Bush's field director in Florida in 88 um, and turned to message and ad making. And it has really just been a brilliant strategist and, and uh, ad maker through the years. He, with some folks like Steve Schmidt and, and George Conway and Jennifer Horn and Reed Galen, I'm probably missing a few folks, started the Lincoln Project. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with them, even predating this week. Um, they are doing some, uh, some great advertising and creative to make the case against Trump. They also put out a terrific pro-Biden endorsement spot. Uh, but they put up a, a spot this week called Morning in America, M-O-U, um, that really captured the devastation that Donald Trump has wrought on this country from a, from a health standpoint, from an economic standpoint. And it got a rise out of Donald Trump. They, they ran the spot on Fox. Trump saw it. Um, he's been rage tweeting, um, apparently uh, behind the scenes, uh, has been raging as well. And it's really thrown him off his game. And so I really wanted to talk to Rick both to understand that strategy, because I do think when you destabilize a leader of an organization, um, you know, that's a huge victory because, you know, I'm sure Brad Parscale and the entire campaign has been having to hear Donald Trump uh, raging about the, the spot the Lincoln Project put out and, and not playing their own game. But they've put together great creative. I think Donald Trump now um, stupidly reacted to this spot, has helped them raise a lot of money, because ultimately what the Lincoln Project folks want to do is put this great creative in front of voters in battleground states, as important as it is to to get in Trump's addled, uh, infantile mind, it's more important to get these great creative in front of voters. And so I want to talk to Rick both about their strategy to uh, mess with Trump, but um, what their plan is going forward uh, to get this great creative in front of voters and kind of how he sees the presidential race. And as someone who's been involved in winning Republican presidential campaigns, might see these battleground states and cohorts a little bit differently than some on the Democratic side. Rick is the author of two uh, great books over the last few years. The latest one is Running Against the Devil, which I'm sure a lot of you have read, his thoughts on how to run and, and beat Donald Trump. Uh, and his first book that came out in 2018, Everything Trump Touches Dies. So Rick is uh, clever with his television ads and his digital ads, but also with the titles of his books. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rick Wilson. I'm so excited to have Rick Wilson with us here today, a legendary Republican ad maker and strategist and uh, Trump tormentor. Uh, we're going to start off actually by playing a couple ads, and then I'll jump into conversation with Rick. So the first is uh, the legendary... Uh, really politically historic ad from 1984, Morning in America, sort of summed up Reagan's um, argument to the country uh, that they should give him four more years. And then that ad is called Morning in America, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. And then we're going to follow that up with a, an ad that Rick and his team at the Lincoln Project just put out 
called Morning in America, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and we'll jump into discussion. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? There's morning in America. Today, more than 60,000 Americans have died from a deadly virus Donald Trump ignored. With the economy in shambles, more than 26 million Americans are out of work. The worst economy in decades. Trump bailed out Wall Street, but not Main Street. This afternoon, millions of Americans will apply for unemployment. And with their savings run out, many are giving up hope. Millions worry that a loved one won't survive COVID-19. There's mourning in America. And under the leadership of Donald Trump, our country is weaker and sicker and poorer. And now, Americans are asking, if we have another four years like this, will there even be an America? Paid for by The Lincoln Project, which is responsible for the content of this advertising. So, Rick, the ad that you guys put out uh, this week uh, has gotten a lot of attention, including from the infantile uh, narcissist in chief, um, really got into his craw. So I want to talk about the effect uh, that it had on Trump. But what were you guys trying to accomplish with this spot? Well, I think the most important thing we were trying to do was to lay out a predicate that demonstrated that the things that lifted up Reagan's vote in 1983 were an actual, there was an actual sense of genuine uplift in the country. And people actually felt that the economic recovery was, was affecting their lives and making them feel better. And it captured that moment really perfectly. And it, it, it almost made Mondale's arguments impossible against, uh, against what people felt in their gut. And so when we started seeing that Trump uh, was doing the thing, uh, you know, uh, of trying to do his own versions of this. You know, the economy is going to be great any time now. The problem of COVID is solved. Everything's going to be perfect and wonderful, and only I can fix it. Um, we decided to flip that on its head because no one believes what Trump is selling in this country right now. No one's buying it. Uh, what they do believe is that he has epically uh, screwed this this operation up. That he has let. Um, let Jared run the program to try to turn this around and it's failed utterly. They do believe that main street has gotten, you know, nothing but paperwork and wall street has gotten a huge bailout. I know I sound, I, I don't know. It's like a, a typical conservative saying that, but you know, this is the worst crony capitalism and Americans see it. They feel it. They're also seeing that we've got over 70,000, probably 80 by the time this goes on the air, dead Americans who in many cases, we didn't have to lose those lives. And we didn't have to lose the entire economy. But Donald Trump's ineptitude 
and the fact that he delayed and denied that this was a problem and deceived the American people for two months, you know, we know that they're feeling these things. And this ad captured that moment, we think, and it certainly captured his attention because although Donald Trump is not a smart man, he has a kind of like animal cunning about him, about when things are going to put him in a political spot and political danger. And this thing set him off yesterday. I spoke to two separate people who were on Air Force One, and I was told you could hear him yelling in the back of the plane, that he was losing his damn mind about it. So in that regard, mission accomplished. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is uh, that is such uh, maybe not good news for the country, but in terms of the mission and getting him out of office, you've destabilized the child king. And that's great. So let me ask you about that. So I'm sure, sure. people on his staff, his campaign, tell him, don't react to this. All you're going to do is get it more views, help the Lincoln Project raise more money, which is presumably exactly what he's done. So how do you assess his reaction there? On the one hand, as a guy who's written two books about this man, I know I've studied him like an anthropologist, and I know he has a, a, a short attention span and a shorter temper. And people could tell him all day long, it's a bad idea to go after these guys because not only are they not your usual Republicans, they're going to punch back, um, but they're also going to convert what you're doing into more views and more resources and they're going to they're going to go out and get more juice in the more fuel in the tank to attack you further. Well, he gave us a, a, I don't want to give you the exact number but it was a a very large amount of fuel in the tank yesterday and as of right now we're at uh just under uh, 14 million views on the video. So, you know, he he created a viral sensation on our behalf. We thank him for that. Um but it is it's because you know David and you have experience running with a guy who was extraordinarily disciplined, who was a focused campaigner, who understood the work of politics. Donald Trump doesn't understand that. He follows whatever shiny object is in front of him or, and I don't mean this facetiously, Donald Trump, and again, I've studied this guy like an anthropologist. Donald Trump is motivated by what makes him money, what makes him more famous, or what gives him an erection. Those are the three motivating factors of Donald Trump. You can put every other thing under that. And maybe these days you could say to sort of self-preservation politically. But all those things are his typical drivers. And when he feels threatened on any of those axes, man, he cannot control himself. Well, and I think on points one and three, uh, reports are, uh, you know, he made as little money as he could. And Stormy Daniel certainly has something to say about uh <laughs> so I'm curious. So 14 million views. I mean, that's 10% of the people that are going to vote in this election. It's enormous organic right. consumption. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, particularly with the fuel you mentioned, Trump's now your best fundraiser, uh, the voters you want to reach with not just this content, but over the next six months. But talk about the strategy. And I believe this is really important um, because he is so predictable. You're right. He Listen, he is, he's got animal instincts. He he's actually, I think, understands how people get information these days. He's a blunt force messenger. But he's so predictable in a childlike way, particularly you've studied him very carefully. So going into his happy places, Fox and Friends, Hannity with spots mm -hmm. that he sees, I've always thought there's value there from a PSYOP standpoint, just because when the leader of an organization, even as unstable as Trump is, to your point, making him even more unstable, doing dumb things like he did in reacting to your ad, so giving the enemy more fuel, um, I just think that's brilliant. And is, th is that going to be part of your strategy going forward? Look, I, it's no secret that we know that Donald Trump watches Tucker, and he watches Laura, and he watches Sean at night. We put this ad on Tucker very deliberately, so he would see it, and so his people would see it. I don't want to spend money on Fox. 
I don't really want to enrich the Murdochs right now, but I will say this. I successfully yesterday and my teammates and I, we took control of the Donald Trump campaign for a 24 hour period. They had nothing. They could do nothing. Their campaign was completely in free fall. They were panicked. They knew he was angry. There was nothing they could do. They couldn't put anything together to drive a message because he was eating up all the earned media space and we forced him into that box. So I'll say with this about Fox, they're mercenary. They will take our money. We will use that to put messages in front of Donald Trump. And the return on investment is enormous, frankly. Right. No, no question. It's brilliant. And, you know, honestly, if you can, I mean, this may be too much to ask, but if you just have three or four more episodes like that, that's three or four more days, <laughs> you know, where they're off their game. It's just brilliant. <laughs> and, you, and you know this very well. The only thing you never get back in a campaign is time. And we're running out of it. I mean, people are going to be voting in, mm -hmm. in less than five months in a bunch of states. So uh, on the ad, one thing that struck me, you mentioned a crony capitalism. Um, I thought it was a, a terrific spot. And, you know, you guys indict his response to the crisis, make clear it didn't have to be this bad. But one of the things I think is going to be a key debate going forward is is obviously who can we trust to dig us out of this economic mess? And I right. think the point you're making that this is a guy, despite all of his protestations and lies, that he's going to fight for working people and construction workers in Queens, takes care of you know folks on Wall Street, a very economic populist message. I thought that was really important. Uh, obviously, you guys did that by design. Um, is that something you see going forward? Absolutely, David. A absolutely. And, I and I'll say this. When we look at the swing states that Trump won by, you know, by, uh, by fractions of the la in the last election cycle, you know, there are a lot of people in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, um, North Carolina, who are very responsive to hearing that message of, You've gotten screwed by everybody else. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to take care of you. But, you know, now, and, and let me loop back one second. When they passed the tax bill, you know, I, I know that some of the guys who wrote the tax bill, some of the lobbyists who sat in Mitch McConnell's office and wrote the tax bill, um, and for all the spend they want to put on it, it was a bill that benefited about 150 billionaires, hedge fund owners, and Wall Street banks. And again, I sound like some sort of, you know, left winger here, but- I hate crony capitalism. It is a distortion of free markets and capitalism in the worst way. Trump's voters still believed that that tax bill did great things for them, even though the numbers were de minimis. But now they're seeing this very obviously because you can't spend the fact that people can't pay their mortgage. People can't pay their rent. People can't pay their grocery bills. They are right now you know, experiencing something where that $1,200 that Steve Mnuchin said would, get, would last them for 10 weeks it's gone. And all the gamesmanship in DC, um, we're seeing all these supports for coming in for the cruise ship industry and the airlines and all these other companies. And it's not hitting those voters that Trump needs to hit and to state those voters. He needs to convince that he's on their side. He never has been, but you know, he doesn't, he's going to have a much harder time this time because he can't just make an empty promise when they've been economically devastated because of his incompetence. Right. No, I think that argument, hopefully Joe Biden not just makes it, but wins that argument decisively, which I think he can. I think he's got, I think, you know, don't you think he's well positioned for that? Just being who Joe is? Yeah. I mean, whatever you say about yeah, Joe yeah. Biden, you know, I think if he, he should be able to win the argument that, listen, when the chips are down and I've got to make a decision, it's going to be with working people in mind and, and you know, people in the middle right, class. Right. I mean, that 
kind of defines him more than anything else. I agree with that. So, Rick, let's say you're able to get to the point, and maybe Trump will keep helping you with your fundraising, where you've got the money you'd like, not just to do the creative, but then place this, you know, both on television right. and digital. Who yeah. do you, from a target standpoint, and, you know, maybe it differs by state, but if you had to define, you know, maybe it's not just one cohort, but when you think about a couple typical swing voters mm-hmm. who are still wrestling with their decision, um, who are they? Well, David, we want to make sure that we're addressing the the people that we know from, you know, and, and by the way, on the front end of this, we've invested an awful lot of what we raise on the front end in building out our voter model and our data file and, and, and starting to identify and target the voters we need. So we're very much narrow casting here. One of the big areas we're going to look for are people that are fairly self-evident. Those are the voters in 2018, those educated, uh, college-educated women, both Republicans and independents in the suburbs, who flipped in 18 and voted for Democratic candidates, giving Nancy Pelosi control of the House. Um, Those people, some of them held their nose for Trump in 2016 and hoped for the best. And they they sort of lived in that behavioral Republican bubble until that moment. And they were like, I can't, I just can't vote for Hillary. I'll have to hold my nose and deal with it. Well, that was, they, they divorced the Republican party in, in, in at, after that, you know, kids in cages and all the other accumulated scandals and horrors of Donald Trump led them to vote democratic. So we really want to get those. We want to get independent and conservative leaning women who, you know, they can't abide Trump. We want to get uh, college-educated white men uh, in some of the key electoral college swing states who have softened on Trump very dramatically. That is one of the groups that we do see moving in the polls uh, fairly quickly. And we want to make sure that we help boost uh, the recapture or at least you know getting them in neutral of a lot of the union-educated uh, or union, uh, non-college-educated white union Democrats. In places like Wisconsin and Michigan, these guys tend to be a little more rural. They tend to be a little more down market, um, but they flipped to Trump. And a lot of them voted for Bush and then voted for Obama. And then they went to Trump. And we want to try to help get some of those folks back as well, or at least park them in neutral in this coming race. Um, and in some other states like Arizona and Florida, we'll have some very narrow casted Hispanic targeting um, to try to make sure that we don't let that part of the of the uh, target set drift. Right. So that's a very helpful overview of, of and and I think it's great for people to understand that the work you're doing, both you know where you're spending the money, the creative is based on that sort of sound research. What when oh, you yeah. look at the country, Rick, and I want to spend a, a significant amount of time on Florida, the, you know, a state that you both live okay. in now but know well. What do you think the core battleground map? I guess currently is, and, and, and if you had to project out three or four months from now, is it going to be the same as it is today? Like, where, where is this going to be decided? I think it's going to end up drifting uh, towards Florida and North Carolina. I think that I, I know from a, from a pollster uh, familiar with the Trump situation that they are increasingly nervous about North Carolina, which they should not be nervous about North Carolina on paper, but that is a state that is drifting. Uh, and Florida, look, I think they still have a very good chance of winning Ohio. It has become much more red. Uh, it still hasn't broken uh, the way that 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 it would need to break, I think, to be super competitive for Biden. It's not off the map, but it's still not where they need it to be. I think Michigan and Wisconsin are showing us some numbers 
and it's it's not just a it's not just a few now. It's starting to become a, a consistent pattern where Trump's in trouble in both of those states. Now he will try to work those states very hard. He will try to work the the those the, the rural areas of those states, the outline the the exurbs in those states very hard, um, particularly on things like Second Amendment and and try to turn this into a socialism versus capitalism race. Um, but I think Florida is going to be Florida and Arizona are going to be the places where we have a, a a real bloodletting this time. And of course, you know, my home state is is the most expensive place in America to campaign these days because we've got 10 big media markets and you know to be on TV here you're you're talking a couple million dollars on TV and digital a week. So, you know, and 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 while Trump has money and we'll have a lot of it. One thing that we're starting to see is that he doesn't get a very good return on his investment. He's not really moving numbers or holding numbers. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's treading water at best. So Florida, I think, ends up becoming a big battleground. And you know, because it's so complex, because it's such a multivariate equation, um, you know, it's going to be very exciting uh, in the fall. And if you take Florida, I'm sorry, guys, my dogs are going off on something out there. If you take Florida uh, off the map for Trump, his electoral path is very narrow. Um, and and if you it, and if he's competitive in Florida, um, you know he's going to stay in this fight for the, for the long haul. So, yeah, I mean, I think Florida is close to a checkmate as anything. Because even if we don't win Wisconsin, and I still think we can in Arizona, if we get Pennsylvania and Michigan, we're sitting just south of 270 in Florida. It's just a bad Correct. Record. I mean, I think Michigan I think Michigan is so soft for Trump now. I mean, it is really – a lot of the numbers I'm seeing out of Michigan, and I just got some numbers back out of Oakland and Macomb County that just you know, popped my eyes out. I mean, former Trump switchers in, in, in Oakland County uh, that I was st- taking a look at or Trump switchers, they are clearly moving in another direction. No, I mean, the Michigan numbers could even be worse for Republicans than they were in 18, you know, because I do think Trump, I think the suburban movement um, is not complete. And you guys are doing a lot of work to to, to make sure that's the case. No, yeah, listen, when that, I talk to people exactly about right. whether they should give money to Biden, I always start with Florida, which is you want that campaign to make Absolutely. the decision to target that state and to be able to do what they need to do to win it. Because I don't get it's funny. And you may have interesting perspective on this. I talked to so many Democrats like, well, Florida, we can't win it. I mean, Gillum lost, Nelson lost, Florida, Trump's moved down there like that matters. It's like, well, Gillum was under FBI investigation. He was a very good candidate. But right. Nelson Nelson was not a good candidate. Hillary almost won it. We won it twice. Like Florida's always yep. winnable. It's also always losable, but that's the point. You know, look, every statewide race in Florida, and, and my first statewide race in Florida um, was 1988. I was the field director for George Bush, the elder. And, you know, we we had a big, big victory that year. But everything since then, and, and at the same time, by the way, when, when, when the vice president blew out Florida, Connie Mack an old school Republican squeaked over the finish line in Florida by less than a hundred thousand votes, I think, or maybe 110,000 votes. And since then statewide races um, have increasingly been, you know, uh, very competitive. And while the Republican apparatus in Florida is, is very competitive and very good at what it does, the state has radically changed in the last 10 years. And, 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 if the Democrats can get the work done they need to do, particularly 
in in the growing counties around Orlando and and started addressing the the 400,000 Puerto Rican voters that have moved to the state. You know, Rick Scott in the US Senate race last cycle. Rick Scott is not a lovable man. Rick Scott is not a, a is not a, an affable man. Rick Scott is not a natural fit with the Hispanic community of any kind. But he poured so much money into the Puerto Rican community and did the actual on-the-ground organizing work just to stop the bleeding that he won and won handily in that in in the statewide by keeping that by by doing that work. If the Democrats can get down there and do that work, and if we can help on that side, we we certainly will. Um, then they have a competitive advantage in the state where, you know, if you're talking about 100,000 votes either way, and you can start working an audience that is very much predisposed to you, that has not been fully addressed. And Hillary's campaign, you know, they, I kept asking people and a lot of our friends down here, you know, are they doing the work? Are they doing the work? And they kept getting yes, yes, yes. And then and, uh, there was no sign of it. And sure enough, on election day, you know, they didn't, they, they didn't get what they needed out of it, which they, they could have, I think, I think Hillary could have turned Florida with a bigger investment in the in Hispanic communications. Right. No, it was close enough. Yeah. So to me, um, Florida is getting more interesting by the day and we're starting to see some public research, you know, as well. So I'm curious, you mentioned Trump's not getting the return on investment they probably like. Um, he's spending a lot of, of money and time, uh, you know, in exurban and rural areas. So is that is your view that that all their, you know, I guess starting with their campaign strategy state by state, but then their their creative and resource spending, it's not to convert a lot of persuasion voters. Um, it no, is to both no. drive up his turnout and registration and drive people to third party. I mean, which is really curious because you and I have worked in politics a long time. I mean, he may mm-hmm. be the campaign above all else that I can remember that has the least um, capability to convert swing voters, but there's a lot of people that he can register and turn out. He can register and turn out. Look, they're they're running a base only plan right now, uh, almost almost exclusively. They, all of their stuff they talk about. We're talking to Hispanics and African Americans. It's all a head fake. You and I both know it. It's just it's all a total head fake. Um, but they're going to try to run up their numbers. They're going to try to run up white non college male voters as as far as mathematically possible, and they're going to try to 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 turn those folks out in numbers, and to turn out you know unlikely voters, and to turn out voters that aren't in the model, and and look you know your boss did that successfully in two thousand eight, where you know the 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 outside the model voter that turned out you max out African American numbers and you turn out a bunch of unlikelies, and you know there you go, I don't think Trump has that same ability. And I think it's very difficult for him, but I do think he will play third party games. We will see the Trump campaign juicing up the Green Party. Uh, we'll see the Trump campaign trying to do their very best to keep the Bernie battle alive and to stoke that anger with the Bernie voters to keep them either keep them home or to have them do what they did in 2016, where 12.5% of the Bernie voters flipped to Donald Trump. So yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of that you know, edge uh, shenanigans on the edges of the election that Trump will and his people will definitely uh, try to play out. But the core of their strategy is is massive base turnout. Right. Similar to Bush in Ohio in 04, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I, I was just gonna say. And there's a Rove model there. Although although Bush was a base plus campaign, it was a hard base plus campaign. Right. So um, 
you have and your colleagues have figured out a way to get in Trump's head. Um, now, Joe Biden, I think, in a big macro way has because, you know, Trump, I think you could argue, got impeached by the House because he didn't want to run against Joe Biden. So he's been yeah. in Trump's yeah. head for a while. But, you know, now that we're kind of in the general election, um, what's your, you know, when you think about the Biden campaign, I mean, there is an argument that, listen, things seem to be going pretty well. He's the safe alternative. Um but I think, you know, doing what you guys have done in the last 48 hours, which is to get him to respond to you, throw him off his game. My sense is that is going to be important for the Biden folks, maybe not every day. But, you know, you, you study Trump so carefully, you've been deeply involved in presidential campaigns. As you assess kind of the Biden strategy and tactics going forward, what are your observations there? Well, I think just as every reelection campaign is a referendum on the incumbent, this really is a referendum on the incumbent. And I don't think Joe Biden has a, a political upside or or a political necessity to go out and make a lot of policy-related arguments. I think Joe Biden needs to sell competence and experience and empathy as a counterweight to Trump in, in large measure because those things are the characteristics that some of the voters that have walked away from the Republican Party in the last couple of years, that's one of the reasons they reject him. There's no empathy there's no, there's no competence. There's no solidity to the guy. You know, Joe Biden is, he doesn't have to be a, a policy genius to win this election. He needs to be a guy who promises to put people first, do the hard work, run the government for the people, you know, and, and, and give a damn. Cause I think that is something that, that we both know about Biden is that is a guy who, and I, I, I a former Republican elected official, one told, a former U.S. senator one time told me, he says, you know, I want, I want Joe Biden to read my eulogy. He says, because that guy gives a damn. And he remembers things about people and he gives a damn about people. And he, he was struck because he'd been asked to go out and do some surrogate work uh, in 08. And he was like, mm, maybe not. I, you know, I like Joe personally. I think that likability, that affability, that, that decency about Biden is as big of a campaign weapon as any big speech or any big rally or any convention moment. Um, and I think those are things are very much on brand for Biden. No, I agree with that. I think from a positioning standpoint on kind of the positive attribute side, you know, that's that um, you can't go wrong there. And how do you, but if you're Biden campaign, how do you think about the more aggressive case you're making against Trump? How do you break through with that both with voters and, you know, maybe. Well, look, I think you keep letting Trump make the case against himself on the one hand. I mean, you, he has built this amazing library of quotes and statements and video of him. This arc of the story of COVID with Trump from denial and deception in the front end in January and February to trying to basically wash his hands of it in May and telling the country, you know, F off, you're on your own. I think that is a, is a storyline where you make that incumbent referendum question Almost all of it is going to be about the state of this economy because of his Trump's failures and the state of the American people because of Trump's failures. I mean, you, you, there's nothing affirmative about Trump that people are believing right now. They don't think the economy's better or going to get better. They're worried about COVID being worse than ever. And, and they're worried about the, the fact that this guy doesn't care about anything except his own needs and his own reelection and his friends on Wall Street. Right. So I think this, you know, uh, as you, you know, you made the, the point that's so true that the, the one 
resource you never have enough of in a campaign is time. Um, and so every day is important. But it does strike me, Rick, that this period is important because, you know, one of the things I've learned in, in politics, and I think this is true for any competitive endeavor, is when your opponent uh, is flailing, you better make sure they pay the full price for that moment. <laughs> you know, you just don't let them up. Oh, yes. And Trump's, you know, obviously politically right now um, in, in some decline. And, and I think the fact that you guys are taking the stage in a big way. Right. Um, you know, some people say, wait till the fall. I mean, uh, to me, that's bullshit. Like, you just got to go in for the kill. Do you there's, think there's, there's a chance you know, over the next 60 days? I mean, some of these attitudes could be cemented in with smart work so that he just has a hard time getting back to the surface line. Right. And, and David, I, I will say this. Every time a Biden surrogate or a Biden ally is able to go out there and, and lay a lick on these guys and to hit them, they ought to be hitting them. Every time they can go out and make the case that this guy is a, is a failure at the big test and that this was the big test and he failed it from the beginning, um, they ought to be doing it. And, you know, we're going to continue to play our part in this sort of guerrilla warfare we're in um, because although... Although I'm not every ad we do is going to get 15 million views and not every ad we do is going to get Donald Trump, you know, tweeting, rage tweeting at us at one in the morning. We know now that he is manipulable. We know now that he is somebody who can be, who can be played. Um, and we know that his campaign was frozen yesterday. I, I, I spoke to two reporters who were on Air Force One yesterday and they said it was just hideous. It was just, he was in a foul, bad, yelly mood. And that the whole thing, you know, the, the whole thing was driven by, he didn't feel like his campaign had already defended him enough on this. And why were we able to do this? And why were we allowed to do this? So that reality bubble he lives in, that's a big advantage for Biden's campaign if they start to take it and they start to push and push and push. And that doesn't mean Joe has to be out there on camera every day. I, I mean, look, I, I want to see more of him, but I, but I don't have to see him trying to seize the earned media ground from Trump. Um, Cause Trump organically tries to seize the camera and he, and he, he wants that fight to be in that space. Not a, he wants it to be about my ratings, my viewers, my clicks, my whatever. And, and I think Biden needs to make this battle about moving those numbers and continuing on that message and that, and, and, and doing that affect as a future president where he gives a damn about people, he's competent, he's experienced, he knows what's up, he knows how to work the problem, he knows how to get smart people in a room and listen to them. Uh, people are desperate for what I like to call radical competence right now. It's why, it's why governors, Republican governors like Mike DeWine and Democratic governors like Gretchen Whitmer, why their numbers are through the roof, and Andrew Cuomo, why their numbers are, are in the 70s, it's because they're out there every day and they're not trying to make it about them. They're trying to make it this nuts and bolts. Here's what we got to do. We're moving this to, we're doing this and then we're doing that. We're doing this other thing. Here's what we recommend that you do as citizens. Boom, boom, boom. Here's what we're going to do to try to, you know, make sure that we can, you know, test people or treat people. Boom, boom, boom. All those things are Trump is incapable of. I do think on the policy front, Biden's team has done a pretty good job of pushing out some of the things he would have done um, to face up to this battle. But that's going to be a moving target slightly, and they should probably keep up the keep up the drumbeat on, you know, what's the Biden plan to reopen the economy? What's the Biden plan to get testing, you know, to universalize testing? What's the Biden plan to push a vaccine forward faster? 
because everything we know everything with Trump is completely ad hoc. It's all just made up out of their heads. Yeah, no, and it's rare in politics you have an opponent that's this um, predictable, where you know how his tormented head works, right? I mean, it's such, and you, and, and I think you guys are to, to use that to your advantage um, is just critical. And and you know, I yeah, think that yeah. uh, you know. But I'm curious. So the, your last book, which is just really great, I know a lot of people listening to this have have, have purchased, if not give it a, a, a read. Running against the devil. So, listen. I think Trump's now. You know, two or three months ago, you might have said this was a fifty-fifty proposition. I think, um, you know, Biden's probably a slight favorite now. But um, you know, yep. Trump's going to bring his vote out. So, so in terms of running against that devil, and, and as you said, you've studied him almost at an anthropological level. How could they pull this off? What's the Trump path to victory? And I'm talking states, messaging. I'm just, you know, maybe this is the 3 a.m. moment for you when you think about how does this guy get a second term? Yeah, no, no, I I do, I do. Um, Well, first off, I think that they start up a series of of things that are like Benghazi plus Hillary's emails times a million, where they they jack up some imaginary or pseudo-imaginary conspiracy theory that that gets a lot of Republicans worried. And I think the Tara Reid story, uh, I think that was their one of their, their early plays in this, one of their early ventures into this. Um, I don't think that's worked out as they thought it would work out. Um, and that's a, it's a, it's a weird, it's, it's in a weird sort of limbo right now, I think. Um, I also think that they're going to go out and they're going to use their allies like Steve Bannon to try to juice up as much racial and ethnic uh, antagonism as they possibly can. I think on the top end of that, Trump will start talking about caravans again, and he will start talking about the the insidious Chinese. You're starting to see that. Um, but you know, racial racial antipathy is is deeply wired into their brand, and so they're gonna. I think that is one of his pathways, and unfortunately, it works. And we saw it. We saw it before. He gave terrible people permission to to let their demons show on the surface, and and that's why we ended up with Charlottesville, and that's why we've ended up with things like the the like the murder of a young black man this week by two cops or two ex cops who jumped out of their truck and assassinated him in the street. Um, they're going to try to rev that ethnic and racial tension up through the sky. Trump won't do it all himself. He'll have his he'll have his minions do it. But that's part of Steve Bannon's playbook, and they're gonna they're gonna go down that path. Um, they're gonna go after a, a lot of those uh, male uh, non-college male Democratic voters uh, purely on the Second Amendment. And I've I've warned my Democratic friends a million times. If you want to know the dirty little secret of why Republicans took over Florida and most of the rest of the South and a bunch of those states in the Northern Tier, it's because white male Democrats love guns. And, and that's one of the other reasons Andrew Gillum uh, lost his campaign was because he went to gun control in the last week of the campaign, not understanding that everything north of the I-4 corridor is basically like the northwest frontier province of Pakistan. I mean, it's the gunshine state. Million four have, 1.4 million people in Florida have concealed carry permits. 35% of them are Democrats. So they're going to go on the Second Amendment track. Um, and I think the other path, and I... I I'm knocking wood against this outcome. Um, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg doesn't survive, a Supreme Court fight will lock down the Republican base, I think, very quickly. And and it will bec- become a fight about that. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, that's the scary one 
for me. All right. Well, that everybody needs to keep that in mind. And listen, your point, I think, about the Second Amendment as voters, like we just have to deal with facts and data here. I remember um, back in 08, you know, we ran some spots um, all over the country, you know, saying John McCain and Barack Obama will both protect the Second Amendment, but who will protect your job? Mm-hmm. Right. We got a lot of criticism for right. that. But, you know, I've learned that, uh, you know, if you don't win elections, uh, really the rest of it doesn't matter. Right. You can propose all the great policies you want. And if you don't win, you don't win. Policy comes later, as a friend of mine says all the time. Well, listen, you know, we everything that's ever happened in this country, wars we fought or don't, people who die or don't, health care we give or don't, taxes we raise or cut, it all flows from elections. Sometimes we forget every debate yep. in every city hall or state legislature or in Congress, you know, those flow, they're electoral decisions at their root, not policy decisions. So I'm curious, uh, you know, for, for me back in sort of the Paleolithic era, you know, I worked on on advertising, you're, you're still in the game. And I'm just curious... Um, at the Lincoln Project. By the way, I think Trump called you guys the Losers Project, right? I assume you've he already did. got he like, merchandise made up and jackets <laughs> and hats. Like, but how do you know you've got uh, you know Jennifer Horn and Steve Schmidt and Reed Galen and yourself and George Conway, uh, just some incredibly talented people. I'm just curious, um, like what's the process to decide you know the creative tracks you're going to work on? How do you divvy up the work? It's just fascinating to me. And all of us, you know, we've worked with each other against each other. You know, on on parallel tracks with each other and all these different things, but never all obviously uh, under one roof. And I have to say, the the greatest part of it is all of us can read a survey, and and so we're quick, and we don't really debate a lot of the number things. We know where the numbers lead us, and we've had this very open set of communications channels between all of us, and we talk all the time. You know, God bless Zoom, right? And we're constantly, you know, letting ideas percolate up and work through, you know, strategic objectives in the various states and the national at our national level communication strategy. And so, you know, and the other part of it is nobody's here trying to like be the golden child for the candidate. Nobody's here trying to be like, you know, the, the, the number one person, you know, who gets credit for the for, for winning the national campaign. We're all just in this fight for the right reasons. And and we have a great uh, we've got a great team of producers uh, right now who who are just tearing it up and having a ball um, because they're off the, they're off the chain. They don't have the you know I like I, I told the guys with morning I was like listen I want you to give me something that is that is a visual counterpart to the original um, you know because the the flip itself is powerful enough but the visual has to be there and so they've really done a lot and we look we did an endorsement ad of Joe Biden that. Uh, one of the, one of his campaign folks sent me a message through another person, basically saying, "I wish we'd done that one." And you know, it's a weird spot to be in, but our creative, our creative experience, I guess, between all of us over time, has let us build this very cool startup. And you know, we talk constantly. We're very, we have a very open flow of ideas. We're also not willing, not unwilling to kill a bad idea. You know, we've had a couple of spots that sounded good at first and the, the news cycle changed or our numbers changed. And so nothing that nothing that isn't going to move numbers or move him uh, sees the light of day. Right. So what in, in an ideal world, what would your budget be so that you should have the resources? Sure. I mean, look, I, I'd love to have Donald Trump's budget, but we've modeled out a, a pathway where we can play a decisive role in the 50 to 60 million dollar range. And that's a lot of money and it'll come most of it, much of it will come on the back end. Um, 
But we've also got scenarios where we play in a smaller area that is also still decisive in the Electoral College map in the 30 to 50 range. So, you know, and that, that, that's, it's ironic. You can see some statewide races that'll spend that much money, but you know, we're targeting a very narrow band of voters. We're targeting a very specific and, and knowable and rarefied set of, of movable voters. So there will be a lot of digital in this campaign. There'll be a lot of very narrow casted ad work in this campaign, a lot of very direct communication uh, with folks. And you're obviously trying to raise uh, money from folks who can write larger amounts, but the average person can sure. go to your website and contribute whatever they can, correct? Right. Yeah. And they, they, we've, you know, we, we the, the, Donald Trump was very helpful and people are at, you know, lincolnparty.us yesterday in enormous numbers and helped us. And frankly, we're flipping pretty much every dollar we took in yesterday to put the same, to put the morning ad on the air further, uh, not just in Trump's face on Fox, but also up in Wisconsin and Michigan. And because we feel like that is a, those two states are taking an enormous economic hit because of his bad decisions. So we want to make sure that it's in there. It's in there. It's in their uh, mindset. Well, I'm curious, Rick. Um, so it's great to be on the same side of the fence with you and, and Steve and others. But for the good of the country, we both look forward to a time where you're firmly back on the Republican side. Right. So because uh, we need that party to be healthy. And, uh, and- I, I, as I've said to a lot of people. I would love to see a Republican party emerge from something after this or a party of whatever the brand or the name is. I think he may have poisoned the brand kind of permanently. I would love to see a party that talked about individual liberty and, and personal responsibility and, 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 and real free markets. Uh, that doesn't exist right now. So in the meantime, you know, the prevention of, of evil is a pretty good mission set to have. Right. Now, so I'm curious, you know, whether it's individuals in the party or trend you're seeing, what gives you hope, meaning, and I think even in a scenario where we beat Trump, that doesn't mean Trumpism dies. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a scary part of it, and there's a cohort of of younger U.S. senators in particular, uh, and I mean folks like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, Um who believe they can sort of sand off the rough edges of Trumpism, who believe that they can, they can turn nationalist populism into a political tool and, and you know, rebrand the Republican Party as, as that nationalist populist economics base. It's not about free markets anymore, and it's not about individual liberty or responsibility. It's about... You know the same kind of statism they would decry. The same. I recall when picking winners and losers was a bad thing, but now you've got guys like Josh Hawley and 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 to a lesser degree Marco, basically saying the government needs to decide um, who's going to provide certain services in our country. The government needs to uh, decide who's going to do um, who's going to who's going to be allowed to trade certain products overseas, and. And I think that that is a dangerous uh, pathway. I also think it probably doesn't work in a lot of ways. I think, I think especially post-COVID, um, the argument of competence and, of, and that government isn't really some uh, giant scheme just to steal your liberty, but rather and, you know, that there's a necessity of certain levels of govern- governmental responsibility. I, I think that that hurts their argument a lot. And I think that we're, 
you know, I I hope Trumpism itself, uh, you know, dies a fairly ignominious death this fall. Um, but if it doesn't, you know, we may end up with Donald Trump for four more years. And and if not, I, I don't think a lot of these Republicans understand that, you know, Donald Trump Jr. or some other Yahoo uh, from the Trump world will go out there and try to seize the mantle. He's had a big effect on our politics and I think it's going to have it's going to take a long time to shake it out of our system. Yeah, and is there anybody that you've seen uh, come on the scene over the last two to four years that gives you some hope? Honestly, not really. I mean, it, there there were there are a few folks who I'm in contact with still, uh, and, I, and I went from this I, in 15 and 16. I mean, I knew dozens of members of the House I was talking to. And, you know, a dozen members of the U.S. Senate I was friendly with. And that number has sort of winnowed away. They've either left, quit, been beaten, uh, or they're too scared. There are still a few people out there um, who, would, who, who are post, you know, who, 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 who you know, are, are honest about their, their discomfort in private, but almost none in public. So I haven't seen anybody out there in like a young up-and-comer who says to me, "Wow, this guy or this woman uh, is going to be the path out of Trumpism as the new the new shining light of 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 post Trump conservatism?" I, ha- I just haven't seen that yet. Well, boy, if, if we're successful at beating Trump at that twenty four field of Nikki Haley and Donald Trump Jr. and Josh Hawley, will be something, huh? Well, listen, Rick, thank you for your time today, David. What a pleasure to talk with you today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you for the patriotic service you and your colleagues are providing, and and I know I will wake up every day uh, hoping to see another Lincoln Project ad that both, you know, does the <laughs> job of voters, disappoint. but does it a number on Trump's head. <laughs> thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Stay safe. You too. Well, I want to thank Rick for that uh, conversation. I, I love following Rick on Twitter and the television interviews he does. So it was a real treat for me uh, to spend some time with him, uh, talking with him on this podcast. Yeah, a few things jump out at me. I, I think the fact that Rick speaks about how he studied Trump almost anthropologically. I mean, that comes through in his books, but I think it's going to make their work really smart. And knowing your enemy is kind of the first condition to beating him. And... Um, I think uh, Rick and his team know Trump intimately, and I hope we see over time more creative that both destabilizes Trump and and his team. Also great to hear that they've had a terrific outpouring of financial interest and support just in the last 48 hours. And so they've been able to take Morning in America uh, from national cable TV into battleground states. And hopefully we see more of that. He mentioned his budget. Their ideal budget is 50 to 60 million. They still think they can do a lot of great work at 30 to 40. So Again, if you're listening to this and you've got some money to spare or budgeted for the campaign, make sure you're contributing to Joe Biden. But if you're looking for some other organizations to support, uh, Lincoln Project is doing uh, great work. And also, I thought it was important. I asked Rick, um, you know, okay, let's turn the tables here. As as dark as things look for Trump right now, electorally, how does he win? And I think uh, everyone should listen to what Rick said about that. Some of the nefarious tactics and strategies the Trump campaign will employ, because I think it's we're going to see that. They're going to get desperate. Uh, They're going to go to dark places. They're going to try and and turn this campaign into a race campaign, you know, socialism versus capitalism, lie about what the country would be like under Joe Biden. They're going to do all those things and more. So I think it's important to understand that uh, we're going to see with great ferocity and great resources, you know, a lot of creative and a lot of tactics 
that you know may not may not ultimately uh, win the election for Trump because I, I think uh, this is Joe Biden's race to lose right now I believe, and and potentially even win it with some margin, but you know Trump's obviously not going to go down without a fight. Goes without saying that he will do anything and everything in his power, not in his power, influence others both in his country and, and outside of the country to spare no expense and obviously are not going to play within the normal boundaries of politics. So Rick's kind of recounting of uh, what he thinks the Trump campaign may do to salvage his uh, electoral prospects is definitely worth listening to. So thanks for tuning in. Hope everybody's staying safe and and healthy out there. Uh, Listen to your local health authorities, uh, not to the White House. (laughs) And uh, we'll be back with you next week.